Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. The floodgates have opened. Worst Easter sermon submissions are flooding in. Oy vey. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward is far from biblical. It's a complete botching, twisting, mangling of God's word so that these guys can scratch itching ears, teach for shameful gain the things they ought not to teach, draw a large crowd, but rather than tell them what they need to hear, that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that God has sent his Son to bleed and to die for our sins and call them to repentance, to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ and also then to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, yeah, like no way. That's like not going to fly if you want to build a mega church. So these guys find every way under the sun to avoid doing that and telling people what they want to hear rather than they need to hear. So let's talk about what it is that we are going to attempt to accomplish on this installment of Fighting for the Faith. Today, we are going to begin with a vision casting leader update. We're going to head to Cross Point Church. And this is the church that used to be under the sway of the vision casting leader, Pete Wilson, who was dismissed from ministry uh, for shameful reasons. And we're going to listen to uh, one of their pastors, Kevin Queen, and uh, his botching of the uh, the whole significance of Christ's resurrection. The name of the sermon that we will be sampling, sampling is titled, The Greatest Comeback. And <laughs> it's, it's another example of what it is you're listening for as far as bad Easter sermons go. So if, you, if you've heard your pastor preach in this way, 
you know you are no lo- you are no longer attending a church that is a good church. You are attending a church where you're being taught falsehoods. You're you're being told what you want to hear. You're not being you're not hearing about Christ significantly or rightfully. The resurrection is not about a comeback in your life. I assure you of that. Then we're going to get to the segment we weren't able to get to yesterday. And we're going to listen to Rob Bell from the Robcast miss the whole point of the garden and the gardener from the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, actually you can say technically 19 and 20. The last part of 19 is where we learn that Jesus was laid in a garden tomb and that where Mary... Uh, on the day of the resurrection, thinks that Jesus was the gardener. Kind of important stuff. And if you haven't listened to the sermon, that the good sermon that we put up yesterday with yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, you're going to need to listen to that first. Yes, you are, because in that sermon, I take some pains to draw the circle around what that gardener stuff is about. It's really an illusion going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Very important stuff, and it's vital that you understand that the women are the ones who are the fir- who are bringing the f- good fruit of the resurrection to the ears of the, uh, of the other apostles, which is the way it should be, considering that it was Eve, the woman who plunged us into the misery that we're in by listening to the word of the serpents. But that has everything to do with the Garden of Eden and what's going on in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Then, to end out the uh, the first hour, we're going to listen to Mark Batterson talk about the Easter storyline. Now, you're going to note that uh, Kevin Queen and Mark Batterson, neither of them at the moment um, I have I decided that they're going to make it into the final cut for next week's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So just keep that in mind. There's a really good chance that neither of them are going to make the cut, <laughs> considering the, <laughs> the plethora of nonsense that we're receiving. But I just want to remind you all that if you would like to submit a sermon for consideration for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, do so. Even if we've already started the contest, um, you know, we take submissions all the way up to kind of like the last minute, if you would. And also, if you think that somebody delivered a really good, stellar, exegetical, Christ-exalting, properly distinguished between law and gospel, sin and grace, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins kind of sermon on Easter Sunday and rightly handled the text and and all of that kind of stuff, send me the link to it, and uh, it may be able to uh, make the cut for this week's good Easter sermon. So, And uh, by the way, we will round out this episode of Fighting for the Faith by listening to two Easter sermons delivered by Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley this past Sunday. Um, the first was in his morning service, and the other one is was in his evening service. The, the morning service was titled Easter Contrasts, and it's an exegetical work through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. And then the fact of the resurrection is the second uh, sermon really worth the, the, the listen on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 26. So those will be our good Easter sermons for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to start off with a vision casting leader update, let's do this.
Ministry Records and uh, Casting Vision. So we're heading over to Crosspoint Church, Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, uh, Kevin Queen is the uh, vision casting leader who we will be listening to in this installment. And we're going to basically note another major twisting of the uh, resurrection accounts. And in this point, it's not about rolling away the stones. It's about, well, Jesus had a comeback, you know. We all love good comeback stories, and so apparently that's the whole point of Jesus' resurrection. And you, too, can have a comeback in your life. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. Here's Kevin Queen. And the truth is that we celebrate this Easter is that you're never too far gone and that it's never too late for a comeback. Never too late for a comeback. See, already... I mean, those are the very opening words coming out of Kevin Queen's mouth. He's now the lead pastor down there at Crosspoint Church. And I have to just basically point out, it sounds to me like he's clueless about what the resurrection is all about. If you think it's about a comeback for you, and it's not too late for you to have a comeback, you've totally botched anything regarding the true understanding biblically of what the resurrection was about. Cross point as we as we celebrate together Easter 2018 and we are thrilled that you're here with us and at all of our campuses for the celebration and today we also kick off our series called the comeback which is fitting because Easter is the greatest comeback story of all time and really yeah greatest comeback story of all time wow we love a good comeback and we do unless it involves Tom Brady uh, we love. <laughs> Now, now I got to say amen to that. You know, I'm just saying amen. 
good, a good comeback. Like we love a good comeback story. I mean, that's why when you go back in history, we, we love stories like Abraham Lincoln who failed twice in business and he, and he, he failed in a, in right. A- you see the resurrection of Jesus. It's just like the Abraham Lincoln story of how he failed in business. Can you hear my eyes rolling? You know, they almost rolled right out of my head. And he lost in a, in a run for Senate one time. He lost twice in a run for Congress. He, uh, he lost in VP candidacy. And he goes on to become one of the greatest presidents that our nation has ever known. And then in culture, pop culture, we've got people like Robert Downey Jr. Right, yeah. Jesus' resurrection is just like Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback. Some of you ladies just had a spiritual experience right there. Huh? <laughs> He goes, struggles with alcohol, with addiction, and then goes to rehab stint and then spends time in prison and comes back to be one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. And then in sports, we have people like Bethany Hamilton, 13-year-old surfer who's attacked by a shark. Yeah, she's not 13 anymore. No, in fact, Bethany follows me on Twitter. And uh, I think she's pregnant with her second child. She's been married for a while, yeah. Her left arm experiences a comeback and... She, uh, she recovers, comes back, and serves championships. And then we love a good comeback story, like in the movies, don't we? I mean, the true stories of comebacks like Rudy. Right. Yeah, Rudy, man. Yeah, see, Jesus' resurrection is just like Rudy. Seabiscuit? And Seabiscuit. Yeah, Seabiscuit is so much like Jesus, right? And Rocky? <laughs> Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and Rocky 5. Like we love these comeback, true comeback stories like Rocky. We can debate the historical accuracy of the Italian stallion later on, but we love, we love these comeback stories. And, and, and they're actually quite predictable. I mean, we know what's going to happen. I mean, we, we all know that Rocky's going to come back and beat Drago in, in Rocky 4. Like we know that that's going to happen. There's a certain formula to the comeback story. It involves a main character who faces some adversity. They face some challenges. They experience some setbacks. And then... Right, yeah. Jesus' crucifixion and death on the cross. That was like the ultimate setback. Which, by the way, would then mean that was the setup for, like, you know, his comeback, you know. Uh, You just can't make this stuff up. They get up and they end up prevailing. We know the formula of a story, and these stories resonate with us. And I think the reason that they resonate with us is that because every comeback story first has a setback story. Right, yeah. They all have a setback story. Those comeback stories, they do. We all know what it's like to have a setback. I mean, unless you're four, right? You know what it's like to have a setback. We all face challenges in our lives, adversity in our lives, problems in our lives. And we've all had that moment where we lay awake in bed at night and we look at the ceiling and we wonder, are things ever going to change? Are they ever going to be different? And so we've all, that's what we all have in common is that we've experienced setbacks. Sometimes our setbacks are because of circumstances that we can't control. Sometimes they're because of choices that other people make. And sometimes our setbacks are because we made stupid decisions. We just got to own it. I'll go ahead and own it in front of thousands of my closest friends. Mm. Stupid decisions. Would those be sins? Mm-hmm. One of my worst setback moments happened uh, April 1st, uh, 1994. I was a junior in high school and uh, not real proud of it, but I was arrested for shoplifting. Yep, that would be a breaking of the commandment, thou shalt not steal. 
which means you were sinning terribly. Um, at a Walmart. And I was arrested for shoplifting a CD. Now, let me just take a moment for students. A CD, CDs are like these little, they're these little discs that had songs on them. And, and it was fascinating technology. It really was. And so I, I, I was arrested for stealing that, um, for trying to take that CD. And somebody asked me, they're like, well, what CD was it? They said, was it Biggie or was it you know, Public Enemy? What CD was it? And um, I can't believe I'm going to share this with you. It was Indigo Girls. It, it, really, it really was. Any street cred I had, just gone. But there was a girl. Yeah, I'm sure that's another breaking of another commandment. Not sure which one off the top of my head, but there's no way that there you can buy that without sinning. Just saying. But I liked, and she liked Indigo Girls. And I didn't know any of the songs. There's no excusing it. There's no explaining it. Just let it go, Kev. But the- so lust was involved because there was a girl. Got it. And it was just, it was this, it was this, uh, this moment. And, and really, I think. It, the culmination of that moment was experienced when walking out of the Walmart, I passed walking into the Walmart, I passed my Sunday school teacher. See, I grew up in a family of faith, grew up in a religious home. I knew the things of God. I just didn't have a relationship with God. And so I kind of had this, I had this public world and then I had this private world. And that day on the front porch of the Walmart, those two worlds collided. I was like, there's, there's no more hiding, no more playing games. I, uh, that was, so that was his setback. Yeah. And so he's had a comeback, you know, and Jesus's death on the cross. I mean, that's a setback too. Uh, but I would note here that Jesus bled and died for his committing of the sin of that sin of theft and also his lust, all of his other sins as well. Jesus's death on the cross was not a setback. It was a victory. He defeated the devil by dying for our sins on the cross. That wasn't a setback. It was a victory. Setback, it gets even more complicated because you remember what day I got arrested? April 1st. And so when I made the phone call to my mom, (laughs) she thought it was an April Fool's joke. I had to call my mom multiple times to convince her that I was actually arrested. Now, I, I share that story with you, share my setback, and some of you are going, well, I'm good. Pastor's been arrested. I've never been arrested. Like, you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But we've all got our setbacks in life. And maybe you've never been stuck in the back of a police car. Our setbacks. You mean sins, right? Because what you've described regarding yourself, sin. That's what that was. But maybe you feel stuck in a career. Or maybe you feel stuck in marriage. Feel stuck in a career is the same as stealing an Indigo Girls CD. Yeah, um, no, I don't think that's the same. Or maybe the setback right now in your life is you moved to a new town and you had to start all over with relationships. Or maybe you're, set- you're right, starting all over rela- with relationships. That's just like being arrested for theft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moving to a town and having to start new relationships is not an actual breaking of any commandment. Because you got this dream, but, but nothing is working together like you thought it would. Or maybe your setback is that you have a child who seems to have lost their way in life and you don't know what to do. Or maybe your setback is financial and debt has racked up. And, or maybe you've got more money in the bank than you've ever had. And you got the resources, 
but you feel more empty and purposeless than you've ever felt before in your life. Maybe the anxiety that was once annoying has now become debilitating and it makes it hard to even function. Maybe you're sitting there going, well, I didn't have anxiety earlier, but now that you rattled through that list, I got anxiety, Pastor. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate the feel-good message on Easter. You know, thanks for that. You already checked out thinking about honey baked ham. I mean, there's... Really, you haven't convicted anybody of any sins. And you think that that's a negative sermon on Easter. Wow. But I'm going to tell you, the feel-good is coming, but we got to get honest about our setbacks. Yeah, get honest about those setbacks, right? He described a sin and then described, you know, annoyances, you know, the difficulties in life that are not necessarily sins. Because some of us are so good at pretending. People are like, how you doing? I'm fine. You're not fine. See, denial delays the thing that God wants to do in your life. Really? Do you have a biblical text that says denial delays the thing that God wants to do in my life? I would like to see that passage. Could you produce it, please? Some of us can spend decades of our lives in denial. And it only delays. Which is not just a river in Egypt. You know, I'm just saying. It's the, the comeback that God wants to bring in your life. And so it's when we get honest with ourselves and we get honest with God and we get honest with others. It's only at the place of honesty that we can experience. We put an ending to pretending in our lives. It's only then that we, that our setback becomes a setup for the comeback. That's right. Cause you know, that's, you see Jesus's death on the cross was the setback, which was the setup for his comeback. Yay, Jesus. Thanks for leaving us such a great example for us to follow on how to experience comebacks in our life after setbacks. Oh, yeah. That's better than you made it sound like comeback. But that was, that was really good. The setback becomes a setup for the comeback. That's what we see at the cross. That's what we see at Easter. No, it is not. Jesus' death on the cross was a victory. His last words from the cross were, it is finished. Uh-huh. What did he finish? Bleeding, dying for our sins, saving us. Yeah, that would be a victory. See, Jesus experienced a resurrection, but you can't have a resurrection without a crucifixion. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, yeah, uh, that's just, it's, it's just blasphemous. Yeah, see, Jesus' death and resurrection was not that kind of thing for us. You know, his, oh, yeah, see, you know, you know before you can have a, a resurrection, you got to have a crucifixion. So, you know, have you moved into a new town and you're having difficulty finding new relationships and friends? Yeah, that's your crucifixion, man. You no. Know. The glory of the resurrection only happened after the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is what we celebrate on Good Friday. But if you were a disciple, if you were a follower of Jesus in that day, there was nothing about that that seemed good. I mean, if you were a follower of Jesus as a disciple, you left everything to follow Jesus. You left your family, you left your home, you left your career, you left it all to pursue him, to follow him. And people thought you were crazy. But you believed that you were going to be a part of a movement that would change the world. And what you saw was incredible. 
You heard the greatest teaching that the world had ever heard. When you heard him speak, it was like the words that would come from his mouth were like the words that your soul always longed to hear. And you saw miracles and you saw people's lives change and the crowds, they flocked to Jesus. And as you went into Jerusalem at the beginning of that week, the crowds flocked to Jesus and they wanted to, to make Jesus king. They wanted to take him as king. But by the end of the week, things went south and it went south fast. Because at the end of the week, Jesus was dead. Right, yeah. Talk about a setback, yeah. Most people, though, you know, if they die, <laughs> you know, that's the end. You see, it's death is not a setback. That's like the end. Last thing they ever did, mm-hmm. unless you're Jesus. The one that you hung your hopes upon, the hero that you hung your hopes upon was now hanging on a cross with all of your hopes attached. And you were in despair and left with broken dreams. Wondering what you <laughs> take these broken dreams and learn to fly again. Oh, man. I, yeah, I think you get the point. This is another example of preaching that utterly misses the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. And by the way, I keep reiterating, and I'll keep saying it, Jesus' death on the cross was a victory, not a defeat. It was not a setback. <laughs> Far from it. In fact, everything went according to plan by Jesus laying down his life and submitting to the will of the Father. Yeah, I think you get the point. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Rob Bell and Mark Batterson. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Promo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. 
Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith may make you believe that Jesus' resurrection wasn't the greatest comeback ever after the setback of the cross. Yeah, that's really not what it's about. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly, no, three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, you can do so by clicking on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget. Yeah, special guest over there in the French horn, Rob Bell. Yeah, this is their rendition of Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra, and you'll notice that uh, they have freed themselves from the limiting modernist definition of notes and are just being guided by the Spirit. Let's listen as the wind of the Spirit breezes in and blows to a crescendo here in this avant-garde song. Tears to my eyes every time. All right, so we're heading over to Rob Bell's Robcast. He just arrived back from a trip and immediately went to his garage, turned on the microphone, and uh, has decided that he's going to do some spewage here uh, regarding the the resurrection. And uh, I would remind you that uh, 10 years ago, Rob Bell was all the rave in evangelicalism. His NUMA videos, all oh, the youth groups were playing them, and everybody was saying he is the next Billy Graham and stuff, and he's totally gone off the rails. I mean, denies the doctrine of hell, affirms homosexuality, and uh, is the former now teaching pastor at Mars Hill in, uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and, uh, and has appeared, you know, as like regular guests with like Oprah and stuff. So talk about falling off the turnip truck or something like that. Here's uh, Rob Bell and his musings about the resurrection, keying in on the, uh, on the text from the Gospel of John where Mary Magdalene thought that Jesus was the gardener. Here we go. I just turned this microphone on. Here we go. A couple of uh, thoughts, riffs, rants, um, a couple of things that deeply move me about this resurrection story. So 
Let's go to Gospel of John because I want to give you why she thought he was the gardener. The Gospel of John, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. By the way, pause, tangent. Those of you who are twitching at the thought of a resurrection sermon, probably because when you've heard people talk about this particular uh, event and you've heard sermons, it was more like a courtroom where somebody was trying to convince you that somebody died for you 2,000 years ago, and that should have something to do with your life here and now. And it all just felt like, what, huh? And it just raised all these questions, but not the good kind of questions, the kind of questions that leave you just sort of whatever. Um, yeah, notice he just took a swipe at what Scripture says. Yeah, I would uh, note that the idea that Jesus died for our sins, mm-hmm, that actually comes straight out of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul um, summarizes the gospel that he preached. And we, it's important to note in the uh, epistle to the churches in Galatia, in the, the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the gospel that he preached, he didn't receive from any human being. No, he received it directly from Jesus Christ himself. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he received this, and we learn from the book of Galatians, he received it from none other than Jesus Christ himself, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So the idea that Jesus died for our sins comes directly from, well, Jesus. Let me give you the cross-reference on this, by the way. Uh, The cross-reference is Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 12 in particular. But uh, listen to what he says starting at verse 11 in the context. For I uh, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the, the gospel that is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, yeah, the opening verses, that's the gospel that Paul received from none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus wants us to know then that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And so you'll note Rob Bell's first swipe is at this idea that Jesus died for our sins. Let me back this up and listen again to what he was saying because it's it's deplorable. I mean, the first crack on, you know, and his podcast musings regarding the resurrection is to take a swipe at this idea that Jesus died for our sins. Let's go to Gospel of John because I want to give you why she thought he was the gardener. The Gospel of John, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. By the way, pause, tangent. Those of you who are twitching at the thought of a resurrection sermon— Probably because when you've heard people talk about this particular uh, event and you've heard sermons, it was more like a courtroom where somebody was trying to convince you that somebody died for you 2,000 years ago, and that should have something to do with your life here and now. Yeah, because that's what Scripture says. And Jesus is the one who gave the Apostle Paul that revelation of what the gospel is. And it all just felt like, what, huh? And it just raised all these questions, but not the good kind of questions, the kind of questions that leave you just sort of whatever. 
Um, so hold on, because I want to take you through this story. And one of the things to think about as you read this as a human story that people told that did something to them is just to simply ask yourself, why did this story have such resonance 2,000 years ago? And if you begin with the human, you might actually make your way to the divine. Are you with me on that? So just hang with me and uh, notice a couple of details. First off, what John tells us is that Jesus was executed as an enemy of the state. So picture Guantanamo Bay, orange jumpsuit. He's executed horrifically. And then a man comes along, Joseph of Arimathea, asks for Jesus' body. And John tells us at the end of chapter 19 uh, that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb. And no one had ever been laid in this tomb. And a group of them laid Jesus in this new tomb in a garden. Okay? Then... Uh, Mary, one of Jesus' first followers, shows up later and on the first day of the week, and this is huge, on the first day of the week, she shows up and she stands outside his tomb crying. And as she weeps, she bent over to look into the tomb and there are two angels in there. And one of them says, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Mary said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him because this is a woman who is not messing around. (laughs) Once again, of course, women on the front edge of history, women getting it before everybody else. But in this case, She sees Jesus in the garden, and she thinks he's the gardener. Now, this writer John is sly. He's clever. He's subversive. These gospel writers have loaded their stories and accounts with a thousand different references to a thousand other things. So in Jewish consciousness, whenever you read an idea or a detail, just ask yourself, where does this occur earlier? So What's all the stuff about a garden? Why? Yeah, that would be Garden of Eden. That's the place I would go to. Why is he crucified near a garden? Why is it a garden tomb? Why has no one been laid in it? Why does she wander around in the garden looking for him? And then when she sees him, she thinks he's the gardener. Now, remember, these gospel writers are always telling you all sorts of other things. And I would argue that a garden for the first audience of a story like this would have been like, wait, where does the whole story begin? Because in the Jewish consciousness, the whole thing starts in a story about a garden of Eden, the first, as you might call it, creation. But the first creation, essentially these human beings, obviously the human story, we have all this power to create the world. We have all this creativity. We have all this ingenuity. We invent these tools. We have, we have all this power to create the world? N- no. The very first sentence of the Bible makes it clear that God created the heavens and the earth. We were created, human beings as a race, to take care of the earth, not create it. That's an important nuance. Let me back this up a little bit. We have all this creativity. We have all this ingenuity. We invent these tools. We have language. We have all this propulsive need to do something with our energies, and yet... We have the tremendous capacity to make a mess of things. Are you with me on that? 
Yeah, that's because of our sin. You are familiar with what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? In the garden. We can take it in one direction or we can take it in another direction. We can use language to build up. We can use language to tear down. We can invent fire to cook and to warm. And then we can also burn the whole thing down with that fire. You know what I'm talking about, correct? And so the first creation, we as humans in many ways took all this sacred, holy, creative power and we did all sorts of good with it, but we also, in many ways, continually made a mess of it. We resorted to violence. We had no imagination. Right. Yeah, we resorted to violence because we had no imagination. No uh, violence came about as our fall, as a result of our fall into sin. And now John tells you a story about another garden. And he tells you about a resurrection in this other garden. And I would argue it's because at the center of John's telling of the Jesus story, he's talking about a new creation. There... Yeah, actually he is. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He's the firstborn from the grave. Yeah, important stuff. Vital that it took place in a garden because Jesus is the last Adam. Read 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans 8. There was the first creation, but now there is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So when she thinks that Jesus was a gardener, come on. Are you with me on this? I, I, I think it's beautiful, funny, clever, subversive, subtle. She thinks he was a gardener. Yeah, because it's a garden and he comes to bring a new creation, a garden is about cultivation. A garden is about the diversity and generativity of something new being planted. Uh, no, it's it's yeah. This this is headed off in the wrong direction now. And something new coming to life, and he's buried in the earth, and then he rises. So this story about death and rebirth, about a seed that falls to the ground, is buried with soil over it. Every time you've eaten anything that was planted in the earth, there was like a seed. It was buried in the earth like a tomb, and then that seed rose up out of the earth and brought you life. So when John tells the story about a garden, he tells you about a burial and then a rising. He's telling a story about cultivation. He's telling a story about the generativity of the world. He's telling a story about the generativity of the world. Yeah, no, I don't think so. About a new creation. Because the question from the very beginning in a garden was, here, you're here, do something with it. Take creation somewhere. You've been given these holy, sacred energies. Steer it somewhere. Story. Has You've been given these sacred energies. Steer it somewhere. Yeah, that doesn't sound at all like what the account of Jesus' resurrection is about at all. Yeah, notice, no wonder he steered into this ditch. First thing he did was take a swipe at Jesus' vicarious and penal substitutionary death for our sins. It has been about the ongoing creation of the world. And so this resurrection story... The ongoing creation of the world? 
What? Let me back that up. Of the world. And so this resurrection story from the get-go was read. There's a new creation bursting forth right here in the midst of the old one. Yeah, that's Jesus. Now, that first creation story from the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, that story sort of was edited together and gained its gained its power in Babylon when these Jewish people found themselves in exile. They had been crushed and conquered by a military superpower, the Babylonians, who hauled them away to a new land, to a new city with new songs and new food and new people and new language and new stories. And so when you've been on the receiving end of violence, when an empire has its boot on your neck. Right, yeah, it's all about evil empire having its boot on your neck or something like that. You are going to be particularly sensitive to what kind of world we are creating. Because when people use their creative powers to bully, to manipulate, to degrade, to humiliate, to conquer others through force, when people use their power and they lord it over the powerless, you know what I'm talking about. That raises questions about what kind of world are we creating. So that original creation story about cultivation, about a garden, about what you're going to do. Yeah, that original cultivation story, right. Do with this power that you've been given. It had very real political, military, economic, cultural, religious implications because the question has always been, what kind of world are you going to create? No, that's not it at all. Talk about utterly clueless. And I would say... um defiantly clueless, willingly clueless, um, you know, the, clueless of his own volition. He does not accept what Scripture says, so he's retooled everything according to some kind of postmodern liberal meta-narrative. Yeah, I think you get the point. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flam. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus And the scent of burning sulfur in the air I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke But they love me everywhere For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do As long as I do it with a flair That's right, it doesn't matter what I say or what I do As long as I do it with a flair We're heading over to uh, the... Vision casting leader Mark Batterson and his church, National Community Church or something like that, out there in Washington, D.C., and uh, his take on the resurrection of Jesus uh, from his sermon from Sunday titled Storyline. Storyline. See if you can make heads or tails of this. Here we go. It did not look good. I know this weekend we celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the thrill of victory. But it follows on the heels of the agony of defeat. I don't know that we can recreate what those disciples felt. Yeah, again, Jesus said it is finished from the cross. Um, he won on the cross. He, yeah, that's... 
So, you know, the cross wasn't a defeat. It may have felt like one to the disciples, but it definitely wasn't theologically. And, you know, Jesus didn't consider it a defeat at all. It was a victory. He actually atoned for our sins so that we can be accounted as righteous before God. But when Jesus said, it is finished, they took it literally. They took it emotionally. It was game over. They were going to the tomb to grieve. Yeah. And that's where we pick up the story. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, it dawned on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone. And I like this part, sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. The Austrian psychologist Alfred Adler was famous for beginning uh, every counseling session with a new client the same way. He would ask this question, what's your earliest memory? And no matter what that client would share, his response was always the same. And so life is. What he meant by that is this, our earliest memories leave a lasting imprint on our souls. Those memories create a baseline, a trend line. You could even say a storyline. Let me give you an example. A storyline, okay. One of my earliest memories happened when I was four years old. My neighbor who lived four doors down uh, rode his bike over to my house and made a pronouncement. You can't ride my bike anymore. I said, why? He said, because my dad took off the training wheels. He got back on his banana seat bike and rode home. And I immediately marched down to his house. I got on his bike and I rode his bike without training wheels back to my house and kicked down the kickstand in my driveway. <laughs> if you want to get into my mind, if you want to understand the psychology of your pastor, that's all you need to know. <laughs> if you want me to do something, do not tell me to do it. Totally demotivating. Tell me it can't be done. You can't do the dishes. You can't take out the garbage in 10 seconds. Now I'm having a little bit of fun, but here's my point. That story isn't just a story. It's a storyline. It's a piece of my personality. It's the way that I'm wired. And so here's a question this weekend. What's the storyline of your life? Uh, whoa. what, what does this have to do with Jesus's resurrection? The storyline of my life. I know that there are plots and subplots, but what's the meta narrative? Heresy hunter. And I'll come back to that. 
Elon Musk is the founder of three multi-billion dollar companies, uh, PayPal, Tesla, and SpaceX. If you walk into the headquarters of SpaceX, you'll find two giant posters of Mars. One poster is of Mars as is, a cold, barren planet. The other poster is Mars as Elon Musk envisions it. It looks an awful lot like Earth. It's a planet that has been colonized by humans. That is Elon Musk's stated purpose in life. Okay. Um, What does Elon Musk have to do with Jesus? Would it be fair to say this weekend that most of us aren't dreaming quite that big? This week, Laura and I cleaned our garage. It is not colonizing a planet, but tremendous sense of accomplishment. Uh, You know, most of us, come on, we're cleaning the house. We're paying the bills. We're we're trying to raise our kids to be uh, semi-civilized children. And and if we can accomplish that, we feel pretty good. Who dreams of colonizing a planet? Again, what does this have to do with the resurrection of Christ? And what inspires that kind of dream? I have a theory, and it's based on his biography. In 1950, Elon Musk's grandparents decided to move from Canada to South Africa, having never been to South Africa. His grandfather disassembled the 1948 Bolonica Cruise Air airplane, put it into crates, and shipped it to Africa. He then reassembled the plane, and in 1954, Elon Musk's grandparents flew 30,000 miles to Australia and back. Just to put that in perspective, this was only 27 years after Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, and Musk's grandparents flew about 10 times further. They're believed to be the only private pilots to ever make that flight in a single-engine airplane. Let me connect the dots. Yeah, sure. Um, Will one of the dots be the empty tomb? I'm a little confused at this point. I don't think Elon Musk's dream of colonizing a planet was conceived in a vacuum. Uh, Okay. Elon heard the stories of his grandparents' adventures over and over again. Who dreams of shooting a rocket into space and colonizing another planet. I'll tell you who. Uh, Someone's... Jesus? (laughs) This is his Easter sermon. I have no idea what this thing's about. This is weird. Uh, 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 Someone whose grandparents pick up and move halfway around the world to another continent who fly 30,000 miles in a single engine airplane. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. No. Elon's father once said of Elon's grandparents, we were left with the impression that we were capable of anything. (laughs) Good on them. Wow. Way to go. Huzzah. You know, again, what does this have to do with Christ's resurrection? I am still quite puzzled at this moment. What I'm getting at is this. Those stories of his grandparents were more than stories. Yeah. They had become storyline. They were more than narratives. They had become meta narratives. Now, why am I telling you that story? And I have no idea. 
What does it have to do with Matthew 28? That's the $24 bazillion question for sure. Well, I think for some, the resurrection story, just a story. It's a nice narrative on Easter, something we might think about once a year. But let's be honest, we treat it like fake news. But it is the central fact of history. I agree. It is. That's, it most certainly is that. This is what underpins all of Christianity. Indeed. It, yeah. Without the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile. See, we don't just believe in a philosophy or a theology or a morality. We believe in an empty tomb. Indeed, yes, this is most certainly true. We just don't always live like it. Um, yeah, see, this is where I'm starting to get weirded out. Do you, Does living like the tomb was empty mean maybe like coming up with a vision for colonizing Pluto? But here's the deal. If Jesus walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, all bets are off. All things are possible. You might even say we're left with the impression that we're capable of anything. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) So because Jesus walked out of the tomb, we can colonize Mars, man. Way to go, Jesus. Yeah, man, anything's possible now. I can fly like a vulture around the rings of Saturn, you know, Because, you know, Jesus walked out of the tomb. Anything's possible now. Now, I know that an empty tomb, it's a leap of faith. And I get that for some, it's very difficult for this kind of miracle to fit within the logical constraints of your left brain. But that's what a miracle is. God doesn't exist within the four space-time dimensions that he created. And let's be honest with each other. I can't prove it any more than you can disprove it. It's a tenet of faith either way. But I think the evidence points to an empty tomb. I would agree. It does. It definitely points to an empty tomb. Indeed. Come on. If you're placing bets on what would last the longest, the Roman Empire or Jesus, his disciples, and this thing called Christianity, You are going to place your bets on the Roman Empire. But 2,000 years later, the Roman Empire is long gone. Right, you know, because Jesus' death proved like anything's possible, man. And there are 2 billion people who claim to follow a man named Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Son of God. Yeah. I think the only explanation for that is an empty tomb. Indeed, I, I I agree with that part. And the good news is this. The, the good news is that Christ died for our sins. Yeah, Consider the earlier portion of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith when we read out parts of 1 Corinthians 15 and the gospel that Paul preached, which was given to him by Jesus himself. And the good news is this. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it dwells in us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reframes our reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, redefines possibility. Uh, no. It's not just a story. I agree. It's not just a story, but it's not about reframing possibility. I'm going to 
Why aren't hoverboards here yet, man? I mean, Back to the Future envisioned that. I mean, because Jesus rose from the grave. Anything's possible, man. Yeah, see, the, the resurrection of Jesus isn't about technological progress or anything like that. Um, yeah, I think that uh, Mark Batterson has completely missed the entire point. And I think you get the point. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, two good Easter sermons by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And no, he does not miss the point. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pyro Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twistbusters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Number two, fighting for the faith. Gonna 
end off with a couple of good sermons from Pastor Charmley before I lose my mind. Let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via sermons from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent, in uh, the United Kingdom. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. Two sermons, one from his Easter morning, one from his Easter evening uh, services. First one is titled Easter Contrasts. And it's based upon the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. The second is titled, The Fact of the Resurrection. And it's based on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 26. So let's get to it. Without any further ado, here's Pastor Charmley in his first sermon, Easter Contrasts. Here we go. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 28, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew records how it was that the Lord Jesus Christ was condemned, crucified, dead, and buried. And that the enemies of Christ, the chief priests and Pharisees, sought to have the tomb sealed so that nobody could pretend that he was arisen when in fact they'd just gone and stolen the body. So Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, 
and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy and glorious gospel. Our text this morning is found in the chapter that we read, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 6. He is not here, for he is arisen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Here we are again, Easter morning, rejoicing. That indeed Christ is alive, that the one who was crucified is now the one who is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed, and we rejoice in that glorious fact. And as we do every year, we come back to the fact, the history of that first Easter morning. And if we, if we read through, as we read through this chapter in Matthew's Gospel, this final chapter, it's amazing how Matthew sets the scene, how he selects what he is going to tell us. And how we have this scene, verses 1 all the way to 10, it's a, a continuous scene from the angel coming through to the women meeting with Jesus. And then, verse 11, it cuts away. And here we have the guards coming into the city and having this interview with the chief priests. And then again, verse 16, we cut new scene, a mountain in Galilee. And these three scenes, this cutting between this, this scene and that scene, sets up this tension at the end, but also this massive contrast between these two groups of people. The disciples of Jesus and the guards at the tomb. We see first of all their experience Experience, their experience at the tomb. 
we see then two very different encounters. And we see finally two very different enterprises. And first we have <clears throat> these two experiences. Here are the guards sitting at the tomb. They've been at watch. Now being professional soldiers, what they would have done is they would have had one group bivouacking over there, sleeping, while the other group were, sit, were watching, standing guard, making sure nothing went wrong. They're professionals. They know what they're doing. But of course, there they are. They've started the watch on Friday night. And here now it is Sunday morning. They've been watching all through Saturday and nothing has happened. And of course, they're quite content for nothing to happen. After all, they're getting paid and nothing's happening. They're just getting paid for sitting there doing nothing. But here they are, guarding. And what sort of men are they? They're military men. We're not told anything more about them. But they are military men, guarding, hard-headed men. Men who it's probably not that easy to frighten, to disturb. And then suddenly, suddenly there's a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. It's a terrifying, pure, holy, heavenly being. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And he said to the guards, absolutely nothing. There was no word from heaven. Now the word angel literally means a messenger. But he wasn't a messenger to the guards. He was a messenger to the disciples, to the women who came. And you notice that we're not told that the stone was rolled out of the way so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. Instead, the stone was rolled out of the way so that the people on the outside could look inside and see that he was not there, to see that he was arisen. For that was the experience of the women. The guards saw it as just another guard job, just another thing to do to occupy their time to earn their wages. For the women, they had had the most earth-shattering experience, never mind the earthquake on Easter morning. Their earth, their world had been shattered. Because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That this was the one who was to have redeemed Israel. To rescue God's people. And they put all their trust in him that this was what he was going to do. They'd been there when he'd ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey declaring that he was the king of peace. And they'd hailed him, blessed is the, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they'd seen him go into the temple. The temple that had been defiled by wicked men who had made it into a den of thieves. 
who had shut out effectively the Gentiles, the non-Jews from the temple by making the Gentile part where people who weren't Jews were supposed to be able to go and worship God into a marketplace. He had demonstrated that God doesn't just care about the Jews, that God's care is for all kinds of people. And they'd seen him disputing with the scribes and the Pharisees, with the priests and the Sadducees. They'd seen him glorifying God in all that he did. And then they'd had the Passover supper in that upper room. And one of the number had gone out, Judas Iscariot. He didn't know what he was doing. And Jesus had spoken of the fact that he was to be crucified and they did not understand. And then he had been arrested, taken by wicked men and crucified. And dead and buried. Had it all been just a lovely dream from which they had awakened? Had it all been a delusion, a lie? A falsehood. They didn't know. They didn't know what to make of it. They were terrified. They were disturbed. They were troubled. And they went to the tomb that morning. Like anybody going to a tomb. Why do you go to the grave of somebody you knew and loved? To pay your respects to the dead. To remember him who was dead. And they arrived and the tomb was open. And there were these unconscious Romans lying around on the grass. And they went in. And they met these terrifying beings, we're told by the other Gospels, that there were two angels. Matthew focuses in on the one who spoke. And the one said... Do not be afraid. That's what angels say in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Sadly, our art has so often sentimentalized angels. So often you'll see pictures of angels in not just children's storybooks, but in churches, church buildings, and there's nothing at all scary about them. The Bible tells us that angels are terrifying. They're heavenly beings. They come from the presence of God. They glow with the holiness of God. And anyone who sees an angel is afraid. When they know, that is, that it is an angel. Because angels have appeared in the guise of men. But these angels weren't hiding it very much. The angel, his countenance was like lightning. And his clothing as white as snow. His face was shining. And it's significant. He doesn't say, Matthew doesn't say like the sun. He says like lightning. Because lightning is a frightening, terrifying light. A terrifying brightness that makes people afraid. And so the holiness of God is a terrifying brightness to sinful people. Because he's holy and we're not. But the angel said, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Why did he know that? Let me suggest that Jesus told him. That Jesus said, there are some of my disciples, some of the people I love and who love me, who are coming to this tomb. And they're looking for me, because they think I'm still dead. And you tell them... He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And they came, and they looked, and they heard the message. Because the angel comes with a message. And the message is that Jesus is alive. And it goes, first of all, to his disciples. To those who will receive it. God's message now goes into all the world, in a sense. But there's another sense in which the message only goes to those who will receive it. Because to those who don't, they either won't let it anywhere near them, or it goes in one ear and out the other. But to those who will receive it, the message is received. It goes home to us. It's rather like... Somebody calls your phone. I have a phone number, mobile phone number, that's one digit different from that of a man called Derek. And practically every week I'll get a phone call. Hello, is that Derek? Well, no it's not. And therefore, whatever phone call it is, whatever message it is, although it's coming to me in one sense... In another sense, it's not. So it is with the message of the resurrection. It goes to all the world in one sense. Everybody is told Jesus is alive. Everybody is told Christ died for sinners and rose again to declare sinners justified. But only those whom God gives ears to hear will ever receive it. The women had a message that was just for them. Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. If he doesn't have ears to hear, he won't hear. The message is good news. The guards just had an experience of stark terror. The women, an experience of Ultimately, good news, reassurance, Christ is risen. And then we have these two encounters. They went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy mingled. Now isn't that so like human beings, so like us? True to life, the fear that they had didn't disappear But the great joy was added to it. Like any really, really good news. Surprising news. Unexpected news. There's always that. But is it really true? Is it really the case? If you've ever been job hunting... And you get news that you didn't expect that you've got this job. Your first thought is, have I really? Good news that somebody 
you know and love is coming to visit, are they really? Is this really going to happen? Or has this really happened? Good news, those of us who have uh, sat exams and tests, you get the news back, you did very well. Did I really? I'm not sure I did. Did I really? This way and that, coming back again and again to the letter, to the email, to the message. Is this really true? They went out with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word to pass on the good news that Jesus is alive. There they were, and as they were in the way, as they went, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! Now Jesus had given the angels the message to pass on. He's going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. Jesus had planned, it seems, he had said to them, said to the angels, now I'm going to Galilee and they meet me in Galilee. But this is what love is like, isn't it? He can't wait. He cannot wait to tell them, he cannot wait to meet them, to reassure them, to give his blessing to them. For he is the God-man. And he is the one who truly loves his people. And so he can, he literally, he can't wait to tell them, to meet them personally and to reassure them. And he says, rejoice! This is Jesus, the man who knows the hearts of men. He knows that they have this mingled fear and joy. And how is he to get rid of the fear? By coming to them himself. And they can see him. And they came. And again, this is so, so true to life. So real. They came and held him by the feet. Is he really alive? This isn't an apparition, this isn't a ghost. Are you really alive? And he lets them hold on to him, touch him, to see, yes, he is alive. And he said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Again, he meets his people. God is so gracious to his people. To meet with them. The risen Lord is the same Lord he was before he died. There's no change in his character. In his personality. In his graciousness. In his love. In his approachability. We can come to him. Because that human heart he still retains, though throned in highest bliss, and feels each tempted member's pains, for our afflictions his, as the hymn writer puts it. He's the God-man, and the humanity is not swallowed up in the divinity. The humanity is there, he is still fully God, fully man, and so we can contemplate, we can think upon the blessed humanity of the Redeemer, the raised humanity. Think about it this way, God as such cannot die, because death is the dissolution of body and soul, and our human nature 
consists of multiple parts that can be pulled apart. The body and soul can be separated at death. God's nature doesn't do that. God's nature is one. But taking to himself our humanity, he died upon the cross. It is only because of the incarnation that we can speak of the God who died. Amazing love, says Mr. Wesley, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That my God should take frail flesh and die? That, that is the gospel. That he died and is alive again. And he died for our sins and rose again for our justification. That is to declare that everyone who believes in him is justified from sin, set free, vindicated, forgiven. But ah, what a different encounter the soldiers had. Some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priests all the things that happened. And you can imagine the guards still have not got over that great shock. Their knees are still knocking together. They're still trembling with fear. Not least because they're worried that bringing this report to the chief priests is going to lead to them being the next people in Jerusalem who need to get who need a tomb to be buried in. They're afraid, they're terrified. And they're not the only ones because they brought what a tragedy that which the priests thought was bad news. You see, that which is good news to God's people that Jesus Christ is alive is bad news to God's enemies. Because the enemies of Christ thought when he's crucified, dead and buried, we don't need to think about him anymore. But then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And they had to think very seriously about him. Very, very seriously. And when the disciples are filled with joy, rejoice! His enemies are filled with gloom. It's as if Matthew takes us from being outdoors, because they're on the road, remember? Suddenly we're in this dark, dull, stone-vaulted room with these long-faced priests and these terrified soldiers. And the darkness of fear, the darkness of sin, of those who hate God... Of those who, although the light has come into the world, they hate it because they love darkness rather than light. The two encounters. And thirdly, we have these two enterprises. And Matthew keeps us with this enterprise of the priests. It was an evil enterprise. They said, go and lie. Go into the city, go to everybody and lie and say, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. It was a very stupid lie. Because if a a soldier fell asleep on guard duty, then his life was forfeit. I'm reminded of a story that was told of uh, Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. 
Frederick the Great was a harsh military man. A man who maintained incredibly harsh discipline among his troops. And on one occasion, as he was doing the rounds of one of his camps, he found the the man supposed to be on guard wasn't on guard. He was sitting down writing. And the king said to the the guard, what are you doing? And he said, I'm writing a letter to my fiancée. Well, said the king, add this, that you are going to be shot in the morning. That's military discipline. If someone's on guard and he's not paying attention, then the entire camp could be destroyed. Then everything could go wrong. A guard, a military guard who fell asleep on duty would be killed. The rule in the temple with the Jewish guards was that if a a guard was found asleep on duty, they were to take his oil lamp tip it over his head and set him on fire. It was vicious. A Roman soldier who was sleeping on duty was to be beaten to death by his comrades. So they stole the body while we slept. It was a stupid lie, a ridiculous lie, because the guards wouldn't all have fallen asleep. Secondly, of course, the disciples had been sitting in an upper room, quaking with fear, afraid, and only a few women even dared to go to the tomb. The men were terrified, what's going to happen, are we going to be crucified next, they said. But you see, the lie had to be told, as far as the priests were concerned, because the truth was inconvenient. Because the truth destroyed all their power. They were there. They had their position as leaders of the Jewish people because there was no king. Because the Messiah had not yet come and everything they did said, we must look forward to Messiah, we must be ready for Messiah. But they said in their hearts, and if Messiah comes, we're for it. And we jolly well hope Messiah will never come. Because then we can sit here in authority. If you've ever read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, that's what the the steward of Gondor does. He's there waiting for the return of the king, but he doesn't want the king to come back. Because if the king comes back, the steward must surrender all his power, and the king takes the authority. And of course, in the last book, as the title suggests, is The Return of the King. And the steward of Gondor does all he can to stop the king from taking his throne. And that's inspired really by what happened with Christ. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own country, his own realm, his own possession and his own people did not receive him. And the priests, there they were, they'd been told, look, this heavenly being appeared. And we were so terrified that we couldn't do anything, that we passed out cold. And the priests knew that that's what had happened. The priests understood. I tell you, they understood when they heard the people crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that Jesus was the Messiah. 
They knew. Jesus asked them now. The baptism of John was it? Well they asked Jesus now where's your authority from? And Jesus said let me ask you a question. Where did the baptism of John come from? From God or from men? And they reasoned their hearts saying well if we say from God then he'll say well why didn't you listen to him? And if we say from men the people are going to be very annoyed with us because the people believe they know it was from God. And so they said well we, we can't tell. Now Jesus knows the hearts of men. Jesus knew that when they said, we don't know, what they meant was we don't want to know. We don't want the answer because the answer we know is inconvenient. And so Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you where where my authority comes from then. If you don't want to know the truth, he said, I'm not going to tell you. They didn't want the truth. They couldn't handle the truth. They said, don't believe the truth. They wouldn't, didn't want anyone to believe the truth. And so they said, well, we'll pay you money. We'll give you a lot of money. A large sum of money. To lie and spread this false report. And if you get in trouble with the governor, we'll go to him and we'll say, well, look... No, they didn't really fall asleep, but something inconvenient happened and we need to cover it up. What a relief it is. When the scene changes again, when Matthew cuts away to the mountain in Galilee. To the open air. What's more open air than the mountains? What's more open air than to head up into the mountains with the sky above the earth spread out below. To stand on one of the, one of the mountains, the hills around here. You go up Congleton Edge for example. And you can stand there and you see the Cheshire Plain. You go up Mount Cop and you see the Cheshire Plain spread out below you. And it's all so open What a change from that room, that darkened room, the open, sunlit uplands. And the disciples. And he came, they saw him, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And again, it's so true to life, the fear in the hearts of men. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is faith having a hard time. Doubt is conflict between what you want to believe and your fears. And so it was with them. And Jesus came and spoke to them. And he gives this glorious enterprise. A priest's enterprise must go out and tell lies and will pay you some money. Jesus gives this glorious enterprise. He says, first of all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Go therefore, and as you are going, that's the force of it, as you're going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious enterprise. It's going to all the world and proclaim this word. 
Go to every nation and teach them. And make not just converts, but disciples, people who follow the Lord Jesus, who are taught of him, who are baptized as a word from the Lord. Because that's what baptism is, it's a word from God to the one baptized, saying, your sins are forgiven. You are united with Christ in his death. And you are promised this glorious resurrection of life. That's what baptism is. It's a word from God that is received by faith. Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. There's the enterprise to go and proclaim the good news, to go and make disciples. And I am with you. Not I'll give you stuff, not I'll give you things, but I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us. We do not see him, he's ascended into heaven, but by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, he is with us. He is here. We give thanks that he is here and he is risen from the dead. That he is with all his people throughout the world. I am with you, he says. Lo, I am with you always. And this is the word that we need to hear to sink down into our hearts. He is with us. This is what makes for Christian bravery. The Christian courage. Because the world is a scary place. The world's a terrifying place. There's persecution, there's suffering, there's death. There's people who are martyred. But Christ says, lo, I am with you always. And that's the only antidote to fear. The fact that he is alive. And oh, Matthew leaves us, a marvellous thing, he leaves us at the end of this gospel, the end of this work, with this wonderful open air scene. The Lord Jesus Christ on the mountain, blessing his disciples, sending them out, sending us out. On this great enterprise, it is not ours alone, but it is his Because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, what happens? Christ's people are raised from the dead. And we shall always be with the Lord, says the Apostle. Now he is with us. Then we will be with him. Never, never separated. Not now, nor for eternity. What a contrast Easter morning gives us. What a blessed reminder of the love of God, the mercy of our God. As we compare these two groups of people, these two things, as we compare their experiences, on the one hand, mere terror, on the other, fear blossoming and transformed into joy. Fear transformed. By the fact that Christ is alive. The two encounters. An encounter with the risen Christ and his word. Rejoice! 
rejoice. For there's an encounter that by the Spirit we should have on this day. To know the risen Christ saying to us, rejoice. Rejoice, it is Easter morning. Rejoice, he is risen indeed. But on the other hand, those soldiers had that encounter with those wicked men who said, well, who by their very countenance dragged people down for they were so depressed and unhappy at the good news. And then we are left with these two enterprises. The one is the enterprise of the devil. The enterprise of the evil one who says, lie. Sadly, we see every Easter, the new, certain newspapers, some newspaper somewhere, some television program somewhere that decides to lie and say, well, the resurrection didn't really happen. And you look into what they're saying and lie upon lie upon lie. And it goes on. Starting the first Easter morning, it happens every year since. The lie, it didn't really happen. But we are left not with the false enterprise, but with the truth. The truth. The proclamation of the facts. That he is alive. The preaching of this glorious gospel, which shall never cease until the end of the age when all God's people shall be fully and finally saved. May God grant us indeed to know the joy of Easter. To know the experience of those women, of their joy, of the fact that Christ is alive. To meet with him even this day by faith through the Spirit. And to know... His voice saying, rejoice and do not be afraid. And that we indeed may continue in strength upon this great enterprise of the church. This great enterprise of discipleship, of life with Christ. And so may God grant us these things this Easter time. As we rejoice that he is risen that he is risen indeed. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Amen. Amen. Here is sermon number two, the fact of the resurrection, based on 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 26. Here again is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Our scripture reading this evening is found in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, reading from verse 1 through to verse 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 26. Paul is writing to a church that has all kinds of problems. Problems that very largely come from spiritual immaturity masquerading as spiritual maturity. From those who believe that they have gifts of all kinds and they can use them as they wish without any concern for one another. He writes to a church where there are those who think that because they are Christians it doesn't matter what they do. And where people have been speculating about this, that and the other 
element aspect of Christian teaching quite apart from God's revelation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first 26 verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Kephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am not, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of Christ, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter from which we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Here we are on the evening of Easter Sunday, the evening of the Sunday when we make a special point to remember 
what every Sunday is set apart because of the resurrection of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. This is the day he rose again from the dead. Not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday is the day of resurrection. And so we make a point once a year to especially remind ourselves of that fact. The fact that is a wonderful, glorious fact. And Paul here is dealing with people who were doing what people do. They speculate and they try to bring the Bible's teaching to a point where it's a bit more acceptable to modern man. Now we think that so that's, this is a modern phenomenon. Well it's not. Here was Corinth, it was a Roman city, and the Romans were deeply into pretending to be Greeks. You look at Roman architecture and compare it to Greek architecture, Roman art, even the Roman gods were basically the Greek gods with Latin names. The Romans were into pretending to be Greeks. And one of the things the Romans really liked about pretending to be Greeks was doing philosophy. And Greek philosophy, a lot of it, of course you had various schools of philosophy, one of the things that a lot of Greek philosophy agreed on was this idea that the body, the physical is bad, and the spiritual is good. Because it wasn't just them. Down through the ages people have had that idea. And the result was that things were being said that shouldn't have been said. And so Paul comes straight to the point here. And he begins with the fallacy that they were embracing. This fallacious idea that the dead do not rise. He goes on to the wonderful fact. The fact of the resurrection. And then points us to the future. The general resurrection of all believers. That Christ is the first fruits. So first we have the fallacy, the error, the mistake. Now, these people did not deny the resurrection of Christ. But Paul's point is they should have, if they were logically consistent. These people didn't believe in any future resurrection. And from the way Paul puts it, he says, these people said there is no resurrection of the dead. And it's most probable that it was, as we said, based on this sort of matter-spirit dualism. That the material is bad and the spiritual is good. And so the idea was that the body is a prison from which the pure spirit needs to be released. And if you have that idea that the body is a sort of material prison, well, if you're in prison, you want to get out. You don't want to go back in, at least not if you're a sensible individual. And here they were saying, well, the body, if the body's a prison, well, the resurrection means you take the spirit that's being freed from the prison and put it back in prison. And that was how they imagined it. And what they've done, of course, is they've forgotten 
that God made everything very good, that God made us body and soul. That human beings have both a physical and a spiritual component, and the two are inextricably linked. If we're not well, then we're dragged down even spiritually. We suffer in a spiritually if our bodies are unwell. The spirit is not separate from the body. And on the other hand, if we are spiritually elated, uplifted, then it has a positive effect on the body. The two are so intermeshed. And if somebody has a a spiritual depression, and not all depression is spiritual, but there is such a thing as spiritual depression, then it very often affects the body as well. We are body-soul unities. That's how God created man. Death splits that unity, but the unity is absolutely part of God's creation. We sometimes hear at funerals, well, we're not really laying the... You know, so-and-so isn't really here. No, part of so-and-so is here. The bodily part and the other part is not. And at the resurrection, the two are to be joined back together. And it was this that they could not accept. They didn't like. And it, it may be that when they were telling other people, other people laughed at them. said, you can't believe something as silly as that. And so they said, well... Okay, we'll see. How can we modify what we're saying? Sadly, in many churches today, you'll have had people trying to modify the message of the resurrection. Say, well, the important thing is that Jesus lives in the hearts of his people. Now, the important thing is that Jesus lives, that he is alive from the dead, that he genuinely did rise from the dead. And Paul brings in here this relentless logic. He says, look, now, if there is no resurrection from the dead, let's grant your premise for the sake of argument. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You can't say that this one glaring exception. If resurrection is a bad thing, then Christ is not risen. If resurrection doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. And if he's not risen, Paul says, then what we're teaching, our preaching, the message of the Christian church is empty. There's nothing to it. It's a lie. And your faith is also empty. There's nothing to it. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then Christianity is rubbish. And we are found false witnesses of Christ. Because Paul explained in the the early part of the chapter how the, the message they gave was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures... That he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen. He was seen alive. 
by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, by the apostles. And then he says, eventually, the five hundred brethren at once, then James, then all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also. What made an apostle was that they had seen the risen Christ. That's why there are no apostles today. If anybody tells you they're an apostle today, they're wrong. They're lying to you. Because there are no apostles today. To be an apostle, you have to have had an encounter, a physical encounter with the risen Christ and seen him with your own eyes. That's what happened with Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, if we're saying we've seen the risen Christ, we're eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and the resurrection didn't happen, then we're a bunch of liars. That's what it comes down to. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Christianity is a load of lies. It's false. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen, then the entirety of Christianity is pointless and empty. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They died hoping in a lie. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The most to be pitied. It's pathetic if it's not true. The effect of denying the resurrection of Christ is to deny everything. Christianity rests on the reality of the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is not raised, then Christianity is not true. It's not just a nice story. It's not something, oh, isn't it wonderful? A parable, a fable, a myth. It's nonsense if Christ is not raised. And the fallacy they committed is thinking they could say, well, Christ's risen, but nobody else ever rises. And Christianity is true, even though, even if the resurrection isn't true. But you can't say that, Paul says. We are, as Christians, absolutely bound to the historical fact of the resurrection. If it happened, then everything matters. If it didn't happen, then nothing matters. And the world is, and everybody is lost and ruined. If Christianity isn't strictly historically true, if the tomb was not empty on that first Easter morning, then so much for Christianity. I think it was Thomas Spurgeon's C.H. Spurgeon's son, who preached in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, said, If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we should just sell off this building and have it turned into a factory or something. If Christ isn't risen, then Christianity is a total and complete waste of time. It's not just something that you can get some good feelings from. It's not something that can teach us Something about how to live. It's a lie if Christ is not risen. But then we come on to this wonderful fact. 
the fact announced in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's a, a type of historical writing, you find it not only in more or less serious works, but in works of fiction, in which the writer pursues the question, what would have happened if things had been different from the way that they are? What if, for example, after the fall of France, Britain had made peace with Nazi Germany? What if? And the what if is that which didn't happen. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Never mind the counterfactual, the what if. What happened? What has happened? And what is true? You know, he doesn't just say, now Christ has risen, but he is risen. That is, the resurrection of Christ is an ongoing reality. He is the risen Lord. Because he lives never more to die. His resurrection is a fact. And it's a fact that with an ongoing eternal eternal significance and it's always true now Christ is risen from the dead and this fact is a fact that is filled with meaning filled with significance for us it's not a fact that we can just look at dispassionately and say well that's very interesting it's a fact that's filled with importance. You know, you go up Cobridge and up at, well, by what used to be the old Raven pub, now the pharmacy, there's this monument in the middle of the, this little traffic island which says, on this site used to stand the old Cobridge school. And you go by and you say, that's very interesting, but it doesn't mean very much to me. Because after all, I had nothing to do with the old Cobridge school. But this is one of those facts that is significant for everybody. It's particularly significant for Christians. Because Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, it's a historical fact. Paul has laboured this point that he was seen, that it happened. The old creed, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, this Roman bureaucrat. And he's in there, of course, because this is real. He's there dating evidence. He's there to say, this really happened. That's what we have in the Gospels. We have history, solid, serious history for men who wrote history for us. And it's a historical fact. And if it's not that, it's nothing. The fact of the resurrection is a fact in the same way that the shooting of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which sparked off eventually the First World War, is a historical fact. 
I remember a couple of years ago going to Leeds Royal Armoury. It's, it's a fascinating building filled with all these weapons that the Queen has collected. Uh, well, not just the Queen, obviously, but successive monarchs have collected over the years. And of course, they've got all these displays on the military, on the, the development of the military. And on one of them, they had this picture of the coat that Franz Ferdinand was wearing when he was shot. And you think, yes, this is a historical fact. This is a, a tangible, real fact. And history is very much a matter of eyewitnesses. If somebody saw it, it gets recorded. If nobody saw it, well, it may have happened, but it doesn't get written down. And so Paul emphasizes here he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That this was all according to God's plan. And that he was seen by Kephas and by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This is how you appeal about history. You say, look, there are, there are eyewitnesses. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses, of course, have contributed to the apostle, to the apostolic records. We have Peter in his epistles. We have John in his gospel. We have Luke. We have Matthew. We have Mark. And all of these have recorded the facts. A real historical fact. And again, the Gospels record how the angels said, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here. He is arisen. The angels said, come see the place where the Lord lay. They pointed to the shelf in the tomb and said, this is where he was. He's not there anymore. The Evangelists record the folded grave clothes that showed he had been there and he wasn't there anymore. It's a fact. And then there is the ongoing fact of Christ's new life. He rose again from the dead. He is risen from the dead. And so he says, speaking to the Apostle John in the Revelation, the last book, of the, of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, he said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hades being the place where the souls of the dead are kept, awaiting the end of the age. He says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Again, it's a fact. There's an ongoing fact. An ongoing reality. And this life also, of course, means that Jesus is still fully human. To be fully human, of course, you've got to have a human body and a human soul. There's a bit of a debate among the theologians as to whether there's an extra thing called the human spirit or not, but that's one of these erudite 
and rather obscure debates, but the point is that human nature has a, a physical element and a spiritual element. And both of these together make up the whole person. And the fact that Jesus Christ took his body to himself again means that he is still fully human. Contrast that with the the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who do not believe, who deny the resurrection from the dead. They will say, well, the body was left and the body was left and that was it. There are some who say, well, maybe it was turned into a gas. In fact, the Watchtower Society will tell you that everything that happened on the first Easter morning, they wouldn't put it like this, but that's what they actually say. They will say everything that happened was a charade. It was play-acting as far as they were concerned, as far as the witnesses are concerned, because the body was never risen, according to the witnesses. It was dissolved into a gas, or taken away and put somewhere. And the angels said he is risen. What they meant was that he has taken up a spiritual type of life, and he's not a man anymore. That's what the watchtower believes. They wouldn't put it like that, but that's what they believe. They believe that Christ is not risen. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. There are those again who speak of a a spiritual resurrection. Paul says no. Unless it's physical, unless the body that was put in the grave has been raised again, transformed. Indeed, transformed but it's still, there's an identity Unless the body laid in the grave is raised again, there's no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. It's a fact. And he is the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. So the fact. And then thirdly there is the future. The future to which Paul points us. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If he is risen, then your faith is worthwhile. And you are not in your sins. Because he was delivered up for our offences and raised again for our justification. That is, that we may be declared free from every sin if we put our trust in him. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because if Christ is risen, then the sins of all his people are forgiven. There is forgiveness if Christ is risen. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because, Paul says... You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That is, you're either united with Adam or you're you're united with Christ. There are two humanities. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we are all of us here, children of Adam. 
You take our family trees, our pedigrees, you trace them back far enough and you end up with Adam and Eve. And Adam was the head of the human race. And when he sinned against God and fell, he brought death upon all, all his descendants. And in Adam, everybody dies. But in Christ, everybody is made alive. Now we have to understand this, because some people have failed to look at the next verse... And say, well, if it says that in Christ all to be made alive, then doesn't that mean that everybody gets saved? Well, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, take that and they say, well, yes, absolutely. Everyone sort of gets saved, but some get more saved than others. That's their view. But Paul goes on to say, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Those who are Christ's, because not everybody is Christ's. And only those who are his are in him. There is a union between Christ's people, for whom he died, for whom he intercedes, and him. And that union, that union is a union of faith. That all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are united to him by faith, they are his. And everybody who is in Christ by faith, by that eternal union that's created by the Holy Spirit, shall be made alive on the last day. And I will raise him up, Jesus says, on the last day. And everyone who's not in Christ won't be raised up on the last day. That is to say, they will not have the resurrection that Christ gives. Now there are two resurrections of the dead. There is the resurrection to eternal life, and the resurrection to eternal shame. We read of that in the book of Daniel. How some will be raised to everlasting glory, and others to everlasting shame. There are those who Christ raises up, they're his people... And there's everybody else who is raised up, but not by Christ, by the Father. And those who are Christ are raised to everlasting life. Not everybody has everlasting life. Everybody has everlasting existence. God has put eternity in the soul of man. But not every existence is worthy to be called life. Everlasting hell is not worthy to be called life. It's existence. It's miserable. It's vile. It's terrible. It's to be avoided at all costs. But everlasting life is life of fellowship with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we can speak of everlasting life beginning when somebody becomes a Christian. We enter into everlasting life because we enter into fellowship. And yet, of course, the Christian, unless Christ comes first, each of us is to, is to die. To be buried, laid to rest, awaiting the resurrection from the dead. And that's the future we look toward. We look 
for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Between the Christian's death and resurrection, there is the word that we are reminded of, of the reality that Christ said to that thief upon the cross. Very truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So for the Christian to die is to go to be with Christ. The spirit goes to the Lord. The body is laid in the ground. The resurrection, the body is raised again. Reunited with the spirit, with the soul. And enjoys and if the whole person the whole redeemed person enjoys eternal fellowship with him and it's like this Paul says he takes a, a metaphor from the harvest from agriculture in agriculture you have the first fruits the first sheaves of grain of the harvest the first The first fruits which said there's going to be a harvest. And then there's the wait. And then the full harvest. And that's what it is. The second advent when Christ comes again in glory. And all his people are raised from the dead. To enjoy that everlasting life with him. Those who are Christ's at his coming. And death is swallowed up in victory. And here is this glorious fact. The glorious fact of Easter. Paul has this counterfactual that he presents. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. But since Christ has risen, your faith is the opposite of futile. Your faith is the most important and gloriously, wonderful, wonderfully full and marvellous thing is that the one thing that makes life meaningful is your faith if you're a Christian it's the one thing that makes life meaningful because Christ is risen because if he's risen then he says you're not in your sins your sins which are many are forgiven you that your sins are not counted against you because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them he was delivered up for our offences raised again for our justification the fallacy that these Corinthians and obviously it wasn't the whole Corinthian church there were some people among them who would embrace this fallacy saying Well, Christ is risen, yes, but that's it. It's only him. And Paul replies, you can't do that. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. And if there's no harvest, there's no first fruits. But if if there's first fruits, there'll be a harvest. The fact is a fact, a wonderful fact. Not just a fact that baffles us and astonishes us but a fact that we know the meaning of the fact is that Christ is alive that he was crucified dead and buried and he was raised again on the third day and that he is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep 
And it is this fact then that points us to this future, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable or pathetic, if only in this life. But of course the, the wonderful fact is it's not only in this life that we have hope, because Christ is alive and his His being raised from the dead says there is an eternal hope and a life of the world to come. And so again we remember this wonderful fact. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you you see the difference there? Yeah, you see what... Yeah, hopefully you're starting to sit there and go, whoa, 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 wait a second here. There's something really wrong with all that other preaching. (laughs) Right? That's kind of the point. Anyway... So what do you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.